Well, church, if you've got a kiddo in the room this morning um, who is fourth grade and under, or third grade and under, I'm sorry, third grade and under, uh, we've got some volunteers in the back of the room, Miss Jennifer and Miss Allie. They've got the Blue Redeemer Kids shirts on. They're going to lead them down the hall. As is our custom here every week, we send those kiddos out for their lesson as we open the scriptures for our sermon uh, in the room this morning. So I love, I love having them in here with us for worship. I love hearing their voices um, as they sing and lift their praises to the Lord alongside of us as well. Um, but I also love the fact that they get a time and space to be able to learn the scriptures in ways that are developmentally appropriate for them. And so uh, if you get a chance this morning on your way out, thank those volunteers uh, who serve every week faithfully in our kids' ministry. And if you don't have a place of service here at Redeemer and you're looking for one, let me tell you, we always could use an extra set of hands and hearts down there in the kids' ministry because as we grow and take on more and more kids. We want to be able to have more and more age developmentally appropriate classes for them. So we're not just piling a bunch of grades together in one room. But have a more diversified offering for them on Sundays. Because a first grader is a lot different than a third grader. And you recognize that. And so if you're looking for a place to serve, that would be a great opportunity for you. Uh, well, if you're new with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've joined us this morning. When you came in, the may have been a guest card or should have been a guest card that looks like this on a seat somewhere around you. Um, if you are, would like some information about the church, feel free to fill that out. Drop it in the box at the kiosk in the back of the room and we would love to connect with you. There are ways we can pray with you or for you. You can submit those there as well. If you're online or if you just want to submit it electronically, you can go to the homepage of our website and find that same information there as well. So this, this week we're in the fifth installment of a series of messages that we're calling CORE as we look at strengthening our spiritual core of our lives. We've been evaluating and digging into our core values as a church and this morning we come to look at the core value of intentional discipleship and talk about it through the lens of maturity, growing in the likeness of Christ. And to do so we want to take a look at a passage in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 and 2 together. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it and you can follow along there. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's Word. You know, our family, whenever we take vacations, we enjoy hiking trails. Uh, we enjoy being out in the woods. Now, my family doesn't enjoy hiking long trails. They enjoy hiking short trails. They don't necessarily enjoy hiking very hilly trails. They enjoy hiking very flat trails, right? And so you get the picture. But the granddaddy of all trail systems in the U.S. is the Appalachian Trail that runs from southern or northern Georgia to northern Maine. Right, so roughly some 2,200 miles through the Appalachian Mountains. 
In fact, through hikers, those who start on one end of the trail and hike to the other end of the trail, it takes them roughly five to seven months to traverse the entire trail system, depending upon their level of fitness and how fast they would like to try to make it in, the, in covering that ground. But, as they, but those who make that journey all the way through, they have to stop at certain junctures in order to resupply. Because as you can imagine, you cannot carry five to seven months worth of food in a pack on your back along the trail. And so you're stopping at various junctures and accessing towns along the trail in order to resupply. Right? You might, the, those access points to those trails, to that, to that trail are called trailheads. There are various points along the journey where you can refresh yourself and resupply. And the terrain along the Appalachian Trail is demanding at times. It's grueling at times. And it's the same for everyone. Now, as we think about the, the core value of intentional discipleship, one of the ways that we've been thinking about that here at Redeemer over these last six months is about the construction of what we want to call a discipleship pathway. right? A discipleship pathway, a trail that each of us is on as a Christian. Because discipleship is a lot like a trail. And it's not a 30-minute out-and-back kind of hike. It's a lifelong journey that we are on. And the terrain along that trail, again, like the Appalachian Trail, is the same for everyone. right? It's deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Right? That's the, that's the mandate that Jesus throws down whenever he invites people to follow him. And there are no exceptions to that. And there are multiple trailheads along this journey, along this pathway by which you access the path of discipleship. Right? Places that you access the trail. Right? And as, we th- as we've thought about that here at Redeemer, as we've thought about these multiple ways in which following Jesus fleshes itself out in our lives here, we want to say there's multiple trailheads to this discipleship pathway, and they include things like Sunday service. Sunday service where there's a weekly gathering with the church for worship, for prayer, for the public reading of Scripture, for preaching, for taking of the Lord's table. That's one trailhead to the discipleship pathway that forms us into the kinds of people who would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Another trailhead by which we access the pathway of discipleship is life groups. Life groups are those small groups in which we can practice spiritual disciplines together. Perhaps as a life group, we fast together. Perhaps as a life group, we enter into a season of prayer together. Perhaps as a life group, we spend time in, on a spiritual retreat in solitude, withdrawing. Perhaps as a life group, right, we study together. Right? We practice spiritual disciplines, and then we get to experience renewed relationships right, in which there's life on life. It's perhaps the place in our church where the one another's of the New Testament come alive most fully, right? Where we're encouraging one another, where we're spurring one another on to love and good deeds, right? Where we're praying for one another and with one another, where we're bearing burdens alongside of others, where we're bearing others as they bear us, right? Bearing with them, right? Because it's different than... Those two things are different. Bearing someone's burdens and bearing with one another, those are different things, right? But life groups are perhaps that place where those one another's get fleshed out in real experiences through renewed relationships. 
Another trailhead to this discipleship pathway is what we would call renew classes and seminars. We have ongoing Bible study on Sunday morning here at Redeemer. Right In this room, just on the other side of this wall, every Sunday morning at 9.30, we have men's studies and women's studies on midweeks, on, on Wednesday nights. We have preteens and youth studies that go on on Wednesday nights as well. So through those ongoing classes where we're renewing our minds, as the text we just read this morning says... And even some seminars in which we come out for a Saturday morning. We've done these in the past and look to relaunch them in the future. Where we deal with certain topics and engage around those things. Right? And then we're planning to launch this fall another trailhead to the discipleship pathway. Which we're going to call Redeemer Intensives. Redeemer Intensives. Right? And these would be a small group, nine-month, semester-based, theological intensive studies. Right, in which we're trying to lay some theological and doctrinal foundations for us as a church. It would involve reading. It would involve discussion. And at the end of each semester, a short reflection paper to apply the truths that we've been learning to the various aspects and practical realities of life. So there'd be leveled intensives in which we would talk about things like systematic theology and things like apologetics. Or where we would take a look at church history and other theological issues and topics to ground ourselves in doctrine, in truth, and in theology. Right? Different than going through a book verse by verse. Okay? Like we would do in a Sunday morning class. And then another trailhead, right, is what we would call mentoring. Now, we don't call it that. Everyone calls it that. But it's an aspect of discipleship in which there's one-on-one, gender-specific, right, six-month relationships where there are certain goals that are set and defined by the person being mentored and the person doing the mentoring. And then the person doing the mentoring helping the mentor person being mentored, right, I know that's confusing, right, move towards those goals, agreed upon goals. And oftentimes in the context of those types of relationships, there's a mutual growth that takes place because each is learning from the other, being sharpened by the other, right? All these are trailheads, right? Not any one of them contains the whole path of discipleship. Right? But they're all trailheads by which we access that path and move forward along the journey of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. And as we access that pathway at these various trailheads, we're moving in one direction towards a destination of being changed into the likeness of the one that we are following. And that's what I want us to take a look at this morning from Romans chapter 12. We are read verses 1 and 2, but we're going to particularly unpack verse 2 this morning and the time that we have left. So how is it that we are being formed into the likeness of Christ as we engage in the various trailheads and move down this journey of discipleship? How is it that we become changed in the likeness of the one that we're following? And listen, church, here's how I believe Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul would answer that question is, is that because as you set your feet on that path of discipleship, you are becoming who you are. You become who you are. Now, let me back up a little bit. In Romans, in the book of Romans, in, in chapters 1 through 11, we read about how someone gets put right with God. Okay? 
And then in chapters 12 through 16, we read about what it looks like to get put back together in his image. All right? First half of the book, well, a little over, quite, quite a bit over a half, okay? Um, the first 70% of the book, how is it that someone is made right with God? Second half of the book, what does it look like to be put back together in the image of God that we were created in? And in the early part of the book of Romans, particularly Romans 5 and 6, there are three big theological words that will help us make sense of some of this. The first one is this. It's justification. And this word has a judicial meaning. A judicial meaning. In Romans chapter 5 verse 9, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now being justified, church, means not that our deeds are made righteous, Okay? But that we are declared righteous. Okay? That God makes a declaration, issues an edict, a verdict over our lives, saying that we are indeed pardoned. We are indeed righteous because of the finished work of Christ. Not because of your work, but because of His work. So being justified means that we move from being objects of God's wrath to being objects of God's mercy, Paul would say in Romans chapter 9. So justification is one of those big theological terms. The second one is this, reconciliation. Now, this word has a relational meaning, right? A relational meaning. Romans chapter 5 verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. See, the work of God in our lives is not just some cold judicial verdict that is rendered over our lives. It's not detached, but it's rather the work of a father who's drawing in his rebellious children back into relationship with himself. Like the father in Luke chapter 15 who runs to embrace his prodigal son when he returns home. God is our father who's receiving prodigal, rebellious sons and daughters to himself and reestablishing relationship with them through Christ. So you're declared righteous, reconciled to God legally. You have standing and position before God as righteous. And then you have relationship with God by being reconciled to Him. And then the third term is that of sanctification. And this word has a practical meaning. In Romans chapter 6 verse 19, Paul says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. In other words, before you knew Christ, you offered your body, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet, your arms, your legs. You offered them up to unrighteousness and sin. He says, now, now present your eyes and your ears and your mind and your hands and your feet and your legs and your arms. Present those things to God as instruments of righteousness. Your position has been changed. You've been declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. You've been reconciled now to God and enjoy a relationship with Him. So because your position has been changed, your practice now ought to be changing. Right? That's sanctification. It ought to be progressively changing. One of the best ways I can illustrate it is through the image of adoption. 
the image of adoption. And Paul actually uses this term elsewhere. See, when a child is legally adopted by parents, their position changes instantly in a moment as soon as the judge signs the papers and issues the order. But their practice changes progressively over the course of time. Their legal and relational status changes overnight. The moment the papers are signed, right, the child goes to being the son and daughter of those parents. Their name changes. They gain a father and a mother. They may gain brothers and sisters in that process as well. They go from being abandoned to being accepted. They go from being unloved to loved. They go from being an orphan to a son or daughter. They go from having nothing to their name to being legal heirs of their parents' inheritance instantly, in a moment. However, their practical behavior doesn't change overnight doesn't change instantly. If you speak to families, I've spoken to a number of them over the years, who've adopted children at foreign orphanages or some very difficult and dark domestic situations as well. To a person, they tell stories about how when those children came home, how difficult it may have been, particularly if they were older whenever they were adopted, how difficult it was for them to go from the orphan mentality and mindset to being a son or a daughter who was loved and accepted. Uh, to, to, to how hard it was for them to unlearn all the triggers, right? all the habits, all the coping mechanisms, all the self-protective behavior that they had adopted for themselves to protect themselves and keep themselves safe. They have to unlearn ways of life from the orphanage or from the homes that they came out of previously and learn the ways of life as a part of a new family. They have to unlearn the ways of coping with those conditions and learn the ways of living right in a warm, bright, dry, gentle, loving home. But that doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. And the same is true, church, if you're a Christian. Right? Your position changes instantly, but your practice changes progressively. In a moment, you're declared righteous and reconciled to God relationally. You have a father. You are a son and daughter. But it takes some time to unlearn all the ways that you managed life before you knew him. That's sanctification. The first part of Romans is about a change in our position. The last part of Romans is about a change in our practice. And this church is Christianity. If you flip those two around, you have something, but it's not Christianity. All right? It's, you might call it legalism because legalism puts a change in practice before a change in position. Christianity puts a change in position before a change in practice. And yet if you've had a change in position, if you've been declared righteous through faith in Christ, been reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus, then there ought to be a progressive transformation in your life. You ought to be taking steps on the pathway of discipleship, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. That's the way Jesus would word it. Paul would word it this way. Progressively changing in your values, your affections, and your behaviors. So here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we see how this works. You're like, when are we going to get to the verses we read? Here we go, right? 
In verse 2, we see how this works. What does Paul tell us about becoming who we are? Two things he gives us. And the first one is this. He says, resist being pressed into the image of your culture. Resist being pressed into the image of your culture. Church, we're all being discipled by someone. Every single one of us. Right? And each of us is a, is a disciple, right? And we have somebody who is shaping our life. Somebody who is molding us. Whether you know it or not, there is a vision for life. There is a vision for human flourishing. There is a vision for happiness and joy that someone is selling you and that is shaping you. In fact, in verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. And by world, Paul here, he's not talking about the rocks and the trees and the flowers and the fields and the fish and the waters and the clouds and the sky. He's not talking about that. What Paul is talking about when he says world, he's talking about a worldview, a way of understanding and relating to reality. Cultural vision and values apart from God. Right? A life apart from God. That's what he's talking about. And so he says, don't be conformed to this world. Some of your translations say, to the pattern of this world. Right? To the ways of thinking in this world. To the ways of living in this world. In other words, don't pattern yourself after what you see those who are living apart from a proper orientation to God. Don't pattern your life after theirs. Don't be squeezed into their mold. Now, listen, I remember when my kids were little. Right? Somebody dropped on, off on the front doorstep. This is what happens whenever your kids age out of stuff. You just give it all away to people who probably don't want it, okay? Um, and so I remember somebody dropping off this, this massive, like, Rubbermaid tub full of Play-Doh and those little molds, right, that you could put on top of them and make them look like a tree or like a fire truck or like a house or whatever it was, cookies, okay? And so all this stuff was on our doorstep, and my kids were like, yes! And I was like, no, <laughs> right? Because we had so much carpet in our house, and I knew where that stuff was going, okay? And sure enough, right, it gets ground into the carpet fibers. In fact, when I ripped the carpet out to put in some vinyl floors, like I still found little flecks of Play-Doh from whenever my kids were younger, right? But they came with those little sets of molds, and they would take the dough and they would roll it up and they would put it on the table and they would press that mold down on top of it. And what would it do? It would squeeze that dough into the image of that mold. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Because the word be conformed is a passive tense verb. Here's what that means. It means it's happening to you, not by you. Right? That you're like that lump of dough and there's someone who's trying to press this mold down on top of you to shape you into its image. So that you look like it and you think like it and you talk like it and you value like it and you view life like it. And Paul says, don't be conformed. Resist being pressed into the image of your culture. Don't allow it to squeeze you into its likeness. Don't let this happen to you, Paul says. 
And this happens, church, whenever we turn our minds off and we don't think through with a healthy dose of skepticism the values we've inherited and the ways that we are living just because everyone else in our culture values that and lives that way. It's being pressed down on top of us. That's the first thing that he says. Resist being pressed into the image of your culture. The second thing Paul says is this, persist in being formed into the image of Christ. Persist in being formed into the image of Christ. There's a three-letter word, a conjunction in the middle of that sentence in verse 2, and it's the word but, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, the word transformed there in the text is another passive verb, which means what? It's not happening by you, it's happening to you. In other words, there's two competing molds that are trying to be pressed down upon your life. One of the world or of the culture of the worldview of life apart from God, and the other is what? God's worldview of life in relationship and proper orientation to God says, don't let this one squeeze you into its mold, but be pressed into the mold of the other. Be transformed, be changed by the renewal of your mind, right? By the renewing the way that you think. In other words, while our justifications being us being put right with God And it is complete whenever we trust in Jesus' finished work. Our sanctification being put back together in God's image happens progressively as our minds are renewed. As the way that we think is squeezed more and more and more and more into the mind and heart of God. Into the word and will of God. And this is not just new thoughts, church. It's new ways of thinking. It's new ways of seeing everything in life. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning to say, answer this question, what does this look like? Right? I want to tease out a few ways that the culture is trying to squeeze us into its mold And how we ought to be formed into the image of Christ, right? We ought to be shaped into the image of the one whom we are following. And each one of them has to do with the way that we think about certain aspects of life. Okay? First, so Paul says, resist being pressed into the mold of your culture and persist in being formed in the image of Christ. In the way that you think. So first, how we think about happiness. How we think about happiness. Do not be squeezed into believing that life consists in the abundance of your possessions. Uh, Listen to an NPR program a few years ago by a man named Dr. Dan Gottlieb who was being interviewed. And he was surveying various high school students who were putting a ton of energy and preparation into one class that was stressing them all out. And it was their SAT prep. And so he started asking questions and he did a survey of these students to get to the bottom of why they were so stressed over preparing for the SAT. 
And so he asked their questions and he got their responses. He said, why do you put so much effort into SAT prep? And they said, so we can get a good score. Duh. Right? Why do you want good scores on the SAT? So we can get into good schools. Why do you want to get into a good college? So we can get good jobs. Why do you want to get a good job? So we can make a lot of money. Why do you want to make a lot of money? And at first, they were stunned. Like, why would you even ask that question? Right? Like, it doesn't even compute for us. And then one young man in the classroom stood up and said, so we can be happy. See, this is the vision for life, of happiness in life, that our culture has written, it is published, it is now marketing, and many have embraced, that's squeezing us into its mold. That life consists, happiness consists in the abundance of things which money can buy us. But Jesus has another vision for life. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12. As he's teaching, someone in the crowd, verse 13, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to, invite the, to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, Man, who has made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You got a couple of folks who are saying, who are coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, like, listen, my brother and I are in a squabble over our inheritance from our parents. Tell them to divide it equally with me. Give me my, or give me my right share of what should come to me. And Jesus says, listen, I don't want to get involved in your family business like that, right? But I tell you, what you need to guard against is not what your brother's trying to take from you, but your own heart. And he says, do not believe. That your life, that your soul, that meaning and purpose and happiness can be found for you in the abundance of things that money can buy. Don't let that vision for life press you into the mold of wanting things that you don't need to be happy. The Bible doesn't say, listen, let me be very clear because some of you are like, oh, here you go, just, just banging on money. Right, but let me just say this real quick. The Bible doesn't say one word about how much money you make. Not one. But the Bible has a lot to say about how much money you keep. It does. So if we're not going to be squeezed into that mold, then one of the things we need to be do, that needs to happen is us be transformed in the way that we think about money and the way that we think about possessions and how they relate to happiness in life. And then begin to establish some governors for our lifestyle. Right? You know what a governor is? I remember having a go-kart as a kid and my parents made sure it had a governor on the engine. You know why? Because they didn't trust me. <laughs> That governor restricted how fast that go-kart engine would go, right? And we need to establish some governors on our lifestyle, particularly in an affluent Western culture, to say, listen, I have all that I need. I don't need more. And so when, the, when more comes, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to keep it 
and build. In fact, that, Luke, that passage in Luke 12 talks about Jesus speaking, telling a parable after that about a guy who had all that he needed. And when he had more come in, what did he do? He built bigger and bigger barns, right? He took out more leases on storage units to store all of his stuff. And Jesus says, you fool, this very night your life's going to be demanded of you. And what's going to happen with all of your stuff? So establish some governors on your lifestyle. Be changed in the way you think about money and possession. Second of all, identity. Identity. Do not be pressed, church, into believing that your identity consists of your sexuality. This is a tough one in our culture. Because our culture is aiming to press us into thinking that the most true thing, the most fundamental thing about us is our sexual orientation or gender. This culture puts your gender and your sexuality at the foundation of your identity and everything else is built on top of that. So if you're going to be true to yourself and you have to be true to what you feel and who you find yourself to be attracted to in any given moment because at the bottom of who you are and our culture's view of your identity is your sexuality and your gender, your orientation is what they would call it. They root your identity in those things. Well, let me say something to you. Christianity starts in a different place. Because Christianity sets the foundation of your identity upon the unshakable truth that you were created in the image of God. That what's most true about you is not who you're attracted to. What's most true about you is not who you have sex with. What's most true about you is not how you feel about your biological, right, components, What's most true about you at the foundation of who you are is that you are made as an image bearer of God. That's what's most true. It's at the bottom of your identity and everything else, including your sexuality, is built on top of that. And so everything else comes, comes second to that in your understanding of who you are. Right? Christianity teaches that. It starts in a very, very different place. That's, a, that, 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 that's what's most true about us. That God has made us male and female. Right? Jesus says that very thing in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. When he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so listen, while you may feel some certain way about the components that God has given you in your physical body, what's most true is that you're an image bearer of God who was created in His image as a male or as a female. Do not allow the culture, the modern notion of sexuality and gender to be pressed on top of you and squeeze you into its mold. So happiness, identity, and third, freedom. Freedom. Do not be pressed into believing that freedom consists in the absence of restrictions. The absence of restrictions. That's the way our culture sees it. 
Listen, if we are relationally been restored into harmony and fellowship with God, every single relationship, growing relationship that you've ever been in in your life has had restrictions. Do you know that? Every relationship you have with another human being that's growing, progressing, it's moving down the field, so to speak, that's a real loving relationship involves restrictions. And if there's no restrictions on your time, no restrictions on your affection, there's no restrictions on your resources, then your love eventually grows cold and dies. In other words, if nobody can tell you how you use your time, if nobody can tell you, right, where your affections can terminate, if nobody can tell you where your resources can go, then that relationship is essentially not a loving relationship. It's not a healthy relationship if there's no restrictions upon you in it. And the same is true in our relationship with God. If we're really in a relationship with God, relationally been restored to Him, then the only way that that relationship grows is if we understand that that relationship comes with its own set of restrictions. Right? Its own set of restrictions. And what we do with our time and what we do with our loves and our affections, our priorities and commitments and what we do with our resources. See, in, in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus is speaking to some Jews who had believed in him. And this is what he says. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. Free. See, our culture says this, that I'm free only if no one can tell me what to do or how to live. That's what our culture will say. That's the mold it's trying to squeeze you into. But Jesus says, if you want to be free, you have to know the truth. He says, abide in my words. In other words, live in obedience to my commands and to my teaching and to the ways that I've outlined and laid out for you and shown you in the way that I've lived my own life. And then you will know the truth. And that word know doesn't just mean intellectually know Bible verses. It means that you will experience the truth of who God is and who you were created to be. And only in that relationship will you find freedom. Because every other master that you would link yourself to is going to have restrictions for you and they're all going to put you in shackles and bondage only in the restrictions that God has laid out for you will you find freedom. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Listen, I, I love to catch fish. Okay? I do. I love to catch them on top water. I love to catch them on the bottom. I love to catch them in the middle of the water column. I love to catch them however they're going to bite. Okay? And I've, I've caught a lot of fish over the years. I've caught them from bank, the banks of rivers and lakes, and I've caught them from the decks of boats. But every fish that I've ever caught in my life is the same with regards to the restrictions they need to be free. Right? Because as soon as... I set the hook on that fish and I feel it tugging and I fight it to the bank or to the deck of the boat and I swing it up. As soon as I bring it out of the water, it is no longer free. You know that? It is gasping for air. 
In fact, you catch a fish, you take it out of the water, you throw it on the bank, and in less than three to four minutes, what's going to happen to that fish? It's going to die. In ten minutes, it's going to be stiff as a board. Okay, rigor mortis is going to start setting in. Why? Because the fish was made for the water. That's what it was made for. The fish has a restriction of the water. And as soon as you remove the fish from the restriction of the water, it's no longer free. The fish can say, I want to be free from the water. And it jumps out of the water onto the land. And then it just flops there until it dies. Because the nature of the fish, it was made for the restriction of the water. And listen, church, you and I, as those made in the image of God, right, were made for the restrictions of the commands of God. And as soon as we remove ourselves, we say, I want to be free. We flop out of the water, right? Then we're laying on the bank gasping for air in bondage because we're no longer free. As soon as you put that fish back in the water, it can swim and it can have fun. It can go to fish parties, right? But you take it out of the water, it starts to die. Put it back in the water, it's free. Don't you see? Don't you see that freedom only exists under the restrictions that were fit for the nature of the creature? And the restrictions that were fit for you and I's nature is the truth of who God is revealed to us in His Word and His commands. And so when the culture says, you can't be free if you're not free to pursue what you feel most deeply, then you look at the culture and you say, that is not true. That is not true because what's most true about me is not who I'm attracted to. It's not my sexuality. My identity is rooted in the image of God. When the culture looks at you and says, you can't be free and you can't be happy unless you rack up for yourselves millions of dollars of possessions, then you look at the culture and you say, that is not true. You're trying to squeeze me into a mold. I'm not going to let it happen to me. Because I'm most free when I'm living under the restrictions that are fit to my nature. And I find those in the Word of God and in the person of Jesus Christ whose image I'm being formed into. Don't let it happen to you, church. Don't let it happen to you. And the last thing that I'll say is how do we resist and persist in this way? And listen, church, what I would say to you is not in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, but is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, is to behold what you will become. Behold what you will become, because whatever you gaze at is what you're going to glory in. Whatever you look at is what's going to lead you. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus doesn't say the eye is the window to the soul, right? It's not a lifetime movie or a Hallmark card. Right? That's not what he says. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, what does a lamp do? It puts forth something. It illumines something. 
So the eye is not a passive pane of glass. It's an active bulb or an active wick or an active candle, a lamp that's shining. And if the eye is shining brightly, right, then the whole body is full of light. But if the eye is dim or if it's been diminished or snuffed out, then the whole body is full of darkness. Jesus says our eyes are instrumental Right? They're instrumental in this incremental, progressive sanctification. Because you need light and truth if you're going to be changed into the likeness of Christ. Whatever you fix your eyes on, Jesus says, your soul is going to feast on. So what are you looking at, church? See, in the days before GPS and radar and even modern nautical charts, mariners would use the stars to navigate. They would always orient themselves on the basis of the North Star because it had a fixed position on the horizon and never changed. So they always knew where they were in relationship to that fixed point. And listen, what you and I need is a fixed point on the horizon of our lives to continually keep our eyes on so that we know that no matter what changes around us, Right? But there's always a point of orientation for us to look at so that we would know where we are and we would know where we are going. What is your fixed point? Is it the happiness that our culture has told you is available through the abundance of possessions? Is it an identity founded upon something other than being one who's been made in the image of God? Is it a freedom that you believe can only be found if there are no restrictions in your life? If that's the fixed point on your horizon, there is no telling where you are going to end up. But if the fixed point on your horizon is a God, listen, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. If it's a God who did not withhold his only son from you, if it's a God who did not come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, if it's a God who came and said, freedom is available and I'm here to give it to you, if it's a God, namely Jesus Christ, who revealed the truth of who our Father was and who we were made to be in His image. Because that's what you see in Jesus. The perfection of the image of God. The fullness of His likeness revealed in Christ. If that's what's on the fixed point for your life, on the horizon, then you know where you're going to end up every single time if you keep your eyes on Him. That's how you resist. That's how you persist. As you progress along this pathway of discipleship and becoming who you are. Right? You're becoming who you this, Positionally, this is who you are. So become that in your practice. And the way that you do that is by looking at what you will become because one day you're going to be just like him. Transformed into his likeness fully. And finally... Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, you're on the trail of discipleship, and the question is, are you gaining ground? Are you progressing? Or are you camped out somewhere with a nice little fire warming yourself, not making any further progress? Are you experiencing renewed relationships? Are you deepening doctrinal foundations? Are you learning to read and obey the Bible? 
Are you using and exercising your God-given gifts in meaningful ministry? Are you progressing along a path? Are you stalled out somewhere? As we close this morning, I just invite you to pray. The Lord will show you where you are and show you what the next step is on the path for you. Maybe it's a commitment to being present as the word is preached and we worship together week after week after week. Maybe it's integrating into a life group where you can experience new relationships and practice spiritual disciplines. Maybe, maybe it's signing up for the intensives this fall to deepen your doctrinal foundations so you have a grasp on what you believe and why you believe it. Maybe it's walking through the Bible in a renew class on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's a mentoring relationship that you need to get connected to to help you progress in becoming who you are as you resist being pressed into the world's mold and persist in being pressed into the image and likeness of Jesus. I don't know where you are this morning, but would you pray that God would show you what the next step is for you on the path. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your mercies, even as Paul says, in light of your mercy, that he appeals to us on the basis of, in Romans 12, 1, in light of all that you have done in Christ, therefore, may we no longer be conformed, but may we be transformed, may we become who we are. Father, give us the grace that we need to resist the view and vision, the worldview of life in our culture and to persist in being conformed to the pattern and the likeness of the image of Christ. That as we behold Jesus, even as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We become more like him. May he be the fixed point on our horizon. And may we know what true happiness is. May we know what true freedom is. And may we know what true, deep, real identity is. Father, help us to see where we are and what next, the next step is that we need to take. We pray it in Jesus' name.